Uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians again. I'm not going to read uh, the entire thing. Uh, we'll cover bits and pieces. Um, if you remember last week, we started, and hopefully uh, with your bulletin you received uh, an outline of the questions. Uh, last week we covered point number one um, that asked the question, what is the church? And we looked primarily in Ephesians chapter 2 and we saw three things that the church is. The church is, uh, we are fellow, cit- fellow citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are fellow members of the household of God. We are the same family. And thirdly, we are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. And the main point, I think, of, of last week and this week together is this. That God is most glorified in us as a church when we are diverse in our makeup, unified by our identity, and that we care for one another deeply. And we, we asked the question, well, what does this mean for us? And I think one of the implications for this text that we talked about last week was to intentionally build relationships with people who are not like us in this church. To not allow the similarities and the, and the similar interests, the mutual interests, to be the things that make up our fellowship with one another. And those things aren't bad, but we we looked and talked about primarily our relationships with one another need to be based on our mutual identity in Jesus Christ. And we looked about how Paul in Ephesians is talking about the inclusion of the Jews and the Gentiles into one body together and how this was a radical idea to first century Christians, to competing hostile groups toward one another coming together in one family. And that's a radical thing. And how in today's society, we have many different things that tell us uh, that's that's a divisive thing. That's dividing you. Those things can't coexist. Republicans, Democrats, black, white, whatever. There are a lot of things in our society today that would divide us. And I think Paul is teaching in in Ephesians that those things are not to divide Christians. Because First and foremost, we are in Jesus Christ. And that is our identity first. And that is what makes us a church. We are a group of diverse people. Look around. Notice we are a diverse group, but we share the same family name. We are Christian. We are in Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at the last two points. Last week, what is the church? This week, we're going to look at why is this important And then finally, well, how does this look or how does this work? Okay, so I'm going to read uh, chapter 3 in Ephesians, verses 1 through 13. So follow along. Paul says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. 
when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful, that it changes our hearts, that it conforms us into the image of Christ. We thank you for your spirit that lives in us if we have placed our faith in Christ. That uses your word to transform us. That convicts us. That changes us. We ask this morning that through your word, you would shape our body, our church, into what what you would have it. Father, a diverse group of people who love each other deeply. And Father, that the world outside would see that and that you would be glorified in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to focus in on verse 10. Look, look with me again at verse 10. So that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ask the question, why is is this important? This bringing together these diverse people, these enemies, why, why is this an important question or concept? And he says right here in verse 10, this is important. So that through the church, through this bringing together of these people, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God, remember what I said, the main point is God is most glorified in us when this is what we are. The purpose of this gathering together is first and foremost about God's glory. Okay? We want to make known the wisdom of God to this world. Now, I ask the question, why does he talk about the wisdom of God here? My first instinct would be to say glory. And he he talks about God's glory. But he, he focuses in and says, the wisdom of God is made known to the world. 
And that's an interesting point. Why does he talk about wisdom specifically? Well, if you were paying attention as we read before that, he says that there's a mystery that God had planned from before the foundations of the world, actually, to do this. And now he's slowly and in Christ actually now revealing that to the world. He's uncovering this mystery that the world might know. All right? And he says this mystery is the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles. Keep your finger here and turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. And Paul here, I think, goes into a little bit more detail about this mystery. And I think it will be helpful for us as we think about God being glorified and his wisdom being made known. So we're going to skip around a little bit through chapter 9. But look with me briefly at at chapter 9, verses 31, 30 through 32. Sorry. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. So Paul here talks about the nation of Israel rejecting God. And if you remember, way back, and he kind of goes through a history of the Old Testament in the matter of a couple chapters. And remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham a man and gives him promises. And he says, I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And I will give you seed upon seed. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to give you a huge family. In fact, more than the stars in the sky. Okay? And, and he slowly increases their numbers. He brings them through into Egypt. And he brings them out of Egypt where they're over a million strong, and he's making them a great nation. And of course, God says, it's not for your sake, but it's for my sake and my glory that you're the least among the peoples. And so he's, he's called a people, the nation of Israel, the, chil- the physical children of Abraham, to be his people and to spread his glory through the earth. But what happened? Well, as you read through the Old Testament, There's a continual rejection on the part of this people. He's called a people, and yet they reject him continually. They turn their back on him. They worship other gods. They rejected him. And and Paul makes the point here is they got lost in the idea that their relationship with God was purely on the law, that it was something they had to do to get right with God. And all along... God says in the Old Testament, you need a circumcision of the heart. There's an inwardness that makes you right with God. It's not just the outward expression. And they lost that. And so they thought it was based on law. And so their rejection of God was a result. And Paul makes that point here. They rejected God. So then look at chapter 11 with me at verse 1. Paul says, I ask then. Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So 
In light of Israel's rejection of God, it might be easy to think, well, God rejects them as a people, right? They're going to turn their back on me. I'm going to turn their back on them. That's how we would think often. And yet Paul says, is that what happened? Does God reject them? He says, by no means. The strongest negative in Greek you can think of that exists. Impossible. God did not reject them. And he says, look at myself. I'm an example. I'm an Israelite, and yet here I am. God has not rejected his people. Yet they rejected Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one to whom the Old Testament points. And then jump down to verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it. For the rest were hardened, as is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, Israel's rejected Christ. God has not rejected them as a people. And in fact, he says, I've actually hardened them. And this is a difficult truth to wrestle with biblically, but we see this happening. Israel rejects, and so God then hardens. He makes it says, no, no, you cannot come to me. That's that's tough to hear. But he says, "This this is what I'm doing. I'm hardening Israel's hearts so that they cannot. I give them a spirit of stupor, he says. Eyes that will not see. And he... he promises this to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. You're going to preach and they're not going to hear. So he hardens them. But now let's, let's continue reading verses 11 and 12. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Was this just, was this just what was going to happen? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. So do you see how Paul's building? He says, Israel rejects God. God does not reject them. He hardens them. But why does he do that? So that the Gentiles can now be be brought to Christ. Paul says, I'm preaching to you, the Gentiles, because God now, through Christ, has opened up the gospel, opened up access to God to everyone. You don't have to go through Israel. We talked about this last week. You don't have to come to the temple to worship anymore. You have access to God through Christ, and that's everyone. So by rejecting and hardening Israel, it's actually served to bring everyone to God. All the Gentiles. You see the beauty in that? And yet, it gets better. He says, and this, the salvation of the Gentiles serves to provoke Israel to jealousy. So not only are are Gentiles now included, but he says the inclusion of us, who were not God's people back then, it provokes God's people to come back. Look down at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then he breaks into this beautiful benediction. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul is so astounded by the plan of God that he cannot help but break into this song, praising God for his inscrutable ways. That in his divine, this wasn't an accident. This Israel rejecting God, and then the Gentiles happen to get lucky and come in, and then, oh, maybe Israel. This is God's plan, which he foreknew and purposed from the foundations of the world. That this is how history would unfold. And that is beyond. I, one of my favorite film directors is M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, directed movies like The Sixth Sense, um, Signs, Unbreakable. And the thing I love most about it is there's always some kind of crazy plot twist at the end. If you've ever seen The Sixth Sense, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's fun because you're going through and you know he's directing the movie, so there's going to be something crazy. But you have no idea what it is. And then you get to the end and your mind is just blown. But that is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. In writing history in such a way that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, come to God in the fullness of his plan. And this is purposed here today in the inclusion of everyone. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. So why is the church like this? It's so that that wisdom, that God is so glorified, that when a world out there looks in here and sees this, that God is made known. This this can't happen anywhere else. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And so I think, for me, as I was thinking through this, the the thing that kept popping in my mind is, why am I here? Why are you here this morning? Did you think you were coming to church for you? So that you could receive something? So that you could get some benefit this morning? Or myself? I think that's often the way, I mean, when I wake up on a Sunday morning, that's often kind of how I have this feeling that I'm going to go to church and I'm going to hear the word today and I'm going to be blessed and, uh, and that's why I'm going to church so that God can talk to me. But I want to offer to you this morning 
we are here primarily for him. And that that has to be our primary purpose for coming. Now we do a lot of things here that he commands us to, and those are good things. But why are we here this morning? He has purposed us here together. So that's why the church is important. Specifically, this group, this diverse yet unified group. That's why it's important. But how does this look? How does, how does okay, so that's all good, but how, looking on the world, how are they actually going to see that at work? What, what does this look like? Let's look at chapter 4, back in Ephesians. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also has descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also attended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are able to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's a lot in there. We're not going to hit it all. There's a lot of deep mystery doctrine in there. But he talks here about how this unity bears itself out, doesn't he? Look with me right at the beginning. The, the command here, the imperative, is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is our life together. Remember, he's talking to a body here. Our life together, our walk, is supposed to look a certain way, according to to the calling to which we've been called. There's a whole host of doctrine for the calling that we're not going to touch on. But it's, we're, our, our life is supposed to be, our life together is supposed to be consistent with our identity that we've already talked about in Jesus Christ. That looks a certain way. And how does he say that looks? One, humility and gentleness. How do we interact with each other? It's supposed to display humility and gentleness. What does he say next? 
in patience, with patience, and lovingly bear with one another. All right? We bear with one another, eager to maintain the unity that we have. And then he goes into this extended section. One, we, ha- we are one, 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 one. We have one, one, right? He, he again builds on the foundation that we are unified in Jesus Christ. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism. There's one God and Father of us all. He's again hammering this point home. But he says, this is all because, this is the foundation for how we interact. When someone offends me, what, what, what is my reaction? Is it to fly off the handle, to get angry, to get mad? Or is it like Paul says here, with humility, patience, bear with one another, to say, okay, I can overlook that offense because we're one in Jesus Christ. That's why. We've offended him far more than you've offended me. So I can overlook that. That's what forgiveness is. So he says, this is how the body looks. We deal gently with each other in humility. But then what's he say at the end? In verse 15, we speak truth to one another. We speak truth to one another. So he says we patiently bear with one another. And then he says we speak truth to one another. These two things are seemingly at odds, I think. They would seem to be at odds. Well, so you offend me and you do something wrong. So I bear with you and yet I speak the truth to you. That how do those things mesh? Uh, we live in a world where they, say they can't mesh. We, we have on one side people who say, yes, we, we bear with, we, we accept all about each other. Everything is okay, isn't it? We, we are to be accepting and loving of everything that you are and everything that you do. And that's okay. So we're, we just bear with. And then we have the other side who says, no, no, no. We speak truth to one another. Everything is all about the truth. And if you're living that way, I'm going to slam the Bible over your head. And I'm going to give you the truth because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm speaking the truth to you. And there's no humility and grace there whatsoever. They're not bearing with the brother or sister at all. And so we live in a society that says truth and love are complete opposites. And you it's either one or the other. And this often has snuck its way into God's church. Hasn't it? I, going home from work, I used to listen to a, a radio program on WAVA. And I, I just remember, this was, uh, I think, last year, when the whole controversy came out about people not doing wedding cakes for homosexual weddings. And people are calling in, and you get both of these things. You people say, no, we got to accept everything. Everything is okay. We just got to love. And on the other side, you have people calling in and said, they're going to hell. It's bad. And I never, never heard these two things married together. And yet Paul says, when we interact with each other, they are married. We are just supposed to display both. Bear with each other and yet 
speak the truth to one another. That is a difficult thing to do, isn't it? And I, don't, I don't, can't always figure that out. In every situation, how does that work? You have this dual command. But look what he says right smack in the middle of those two things. Has he left you alone to figure this out? What's Paul say? He's given us gifts as a church. And those are people to help us figure this out. I think Paul's really focusing in on the role of pastors and teachers here to help us figure this out. How do we exist together? But elsewhere, the writers of the New Testament talk about the, the importance and the role of pastors and elders and teachers. But here, I think, Paul focuses in on the role of pastor and teacher is to help us as a people figure this out. Living, bearing with each other, and speaking truth to one another. And they do that primarily by speaking this truth. That's how they help us figure it out. They say, hey, look, the word of God is not just this thing out there. It has meaning for your life. They do it from the pulpit. They do it one-on-one when they counsel and they teach. This is why God, one of the reasons why God has given us these gifted individuals. To help us figure out in our minds how we live together in unity when there are differences. And, and notice, Paul assumes that these differences are going to pop up. Why does he command them to live in humility? He's just talking about, in chapter 3, this division that could potentially be there. And he says, here, I think the assumption is that things will come up. There will be times when the divisions between us, the things that make us different, actually cause conflict. Right? The, the New Testament assumes conflict is going to rise in such a diverse group. And yet he's given us things to help us. He gives us commands. This is how we think through this. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful in this. So this morning... As we think about our life together, we, we glorify God because we are a diverse group. We are unified in who we are in Christ, and we care deeply for one another. So I just have three points of implication that we have. The first one is, are you listening to good teaching? Paul says, these men who do this are important to the life of the church. Are you listening to what they say? Are you listening to them bringing God's word to bear on your life? And not just are you sitting here this morning or every Sunday, but are you actively listening? Are you actually saying, this is God's word, it actually has meaning for my life? Or do you just come and again to get fed? Do we do that? Are we listening to good teaching? Two is just care deeply for each other. Care deeply for each other. As, 
as the world looks, looks in at us, as the city of Greenbelt, which is a very diverse and yet abrasive place at times, looks in at our group, at us as a body, do they see us caring deeply for each other when a need arises? Are we jumping and saying, yes, I'm here. You, you are my family member or my brother or sister. I want to be there to serve, to meet that need. And when the world sees someone so different than myself meeting those needs, that's what brings God glory. Are you jumping at the opportunity? We, we can have programs all day as a church, but if the inward desire, if the inward change is not there, to want to be part of this family and to see the importance of that, then programs are going to be dead in the water. We, are we jumping at the opportunity to meet each other's needs, to care deeply for each other so that God is glorified in us? And thirdly, fill your conversations with the truth. Steve texted me, uh, I think it was Monday morning, and said, hey, we had, had someone over for lunch, and we were just talking about the sermon in the text. That is great. That is a perfect example of what our life together as a body should be like. Meeting for lunch, caring for each other, spending time together as a family, and having our conversations filled with the truth. When we get together to hang out, are we talking about the truth and how it bears on our lives? Or are we merely content to just talk about the weather or what's going on at work? And those are good things. But the truth impacts all of us. Are we a a community, a family, who talks about the truth and wants to be impacted by it? And let that bring God glory. Let's close in prayer.